I'm ordering you to seed and desist. This week, Council unanimously rejected a social media policy, and we'll be joined by Sarah Hamilton to discuss why. Plus, the podcast isn't getting sued, and we'd like to keep it that way, please, Troy. We'll disavow his comments this week, where necessary. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 116. And I gotta say, if you're not following me on Twitter, you're just missing out on a treat. Just head on over to twitter.com slash Troy Pavlik. Hit that follow button, you know? Spring that bell. Subscribe. Like. Smash it. Isn't that yeah. what they say? I, it's, it's hard to know. I think there might be a new thing on TikTok. I don't understand these Zoomers. I'm too old for that. Too complicated. On to the rapid fire. The Edmonton football team has settled on a final seven possible names and has opened them up for voting by the public. The options available are the Edmonton Elk, Elkhounds, Evergreens, Evergolds, Ever Elks, Hound Evers, and Elk Green Gold Everhounds. The board of directors of the Edmonton football team celebrated the final name, saying that the options are as diverse as the football team's board of directors. Edmonton Transit Service was quick to stress that although they closed the same intersection this week as they closed a year ago to repair an LRT rail that was cracked in the cold, it was a, quote, completely different rail, end quote. With adjectives like complete, there's not a lot of room to wiggle around, so Speaking Municipally filled out a spreadsheet to compare and contrast the two incidents. In the similarities column, we have made of the same material, installed at the same time, in the same location, and failing in the same condition as the rail last year. However, in the differences, we did record not technically the exact precise atoms that broke in the previous year. Last year, we might have made a joke about this, but since this episode is labeled with a different number, we're a completely different podcast. Beaumont has passed first reading of a bylaw to borrow $10 million to create an innovation business park. This represents a number that's maybe more or less than the net worth of Beaumont, which is somewhere, or maybe already annexed. That's the one that became a city recently, right? The progress was celebrated by Beaumont Mayor uh, John Stewart. Are we sure this is a real place? No, I'm done reading this one. We're getting punked. This is some late night TV stunt and we're not getting suckered into believing that Beaumont is a real place. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this week we want to talk to you about Pod Power, the way that our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, the Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a Pod Power shout out to What's the Cheese Miss, a new podcast with an inside look on Filipinx identity in the diaspora. Cheesemas is the Tagalog word for gossip. You can subscribe to hear weekly episodes about disappointing your parents, breaking it to your friends that you're not Italian, trying to figure out why you punched a car, and much, much more. What the Cheesemas is produced by CJSR, Edmonton's campus and community radio station, and you can download it wherever you find your podcasts and on whatthecheesemas.transistor.fm. That's T-S-I-S-M-I-S. Right off the bat, we're going to get into the big news of the week, which is not the news you're thinking of if you're following me on Twitter. It's in fact that the social media policy that council was debating this week failed unanimously. It was voted down. And when we were prepping for the show, we put together some notes and we thought, hmm, okay, we're going to basically tell you what Sarah Hamilton said. And we thought, hey, here's a fun idea. Why don't we just have Sarah Hamilton say it? So say hello to our guest, uh, Ward 5 Counselor, Sarah Hamilton. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
we'll start at the logical start point. You had a thread that got a lot of attention this week, right after the social media policy got voted down. Take us into that thread. What was the crux of it? What did you say? I want to say few hours after we'd had a pretty civilized discussion, I think, about the social media policy and the unintended consequences of it, out of absolutely nowhere, I get an email, which isn't surprising to me, but I think was to a lot of people that, um, you know, called me a snowflake, told me to, I don't know, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah. Okay. All right. You know, to, to paraphrase, you know, telling me to go fuck myself and work in the private sector. And then when I asked that person to no longer contact me, this is unsolicited, by the way, you know, it's uh, come find me, you dumb bitch. You think you can boss me around? Not a goddamn fucking thing. Have a wonderful evening, you know, that. <laughs> and I <laughs> At think least it ended on a polite note, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> so. Take us into that a little bit because you mentioned that you weren't surprised by this. And I think that's indicative. Throughout the discussion of the social media policy, it had been hard to frame for my colleagues, I think, the unintended consequences of saying to counselors that they had to couch how they chose to block people from contacting them. And I think what I realized in the course of this discussion is that Andrew Knack, as an example, Andrew and I could be talking about someone being really rude to us, but the disagreement Andrew might experience is a disagreement of policy, perhaps even a disagreement where somebody thinks that he's not good at his job. He is. <laughs> um, but that kind of disagreement, the, the kind of rudeness that I get is obscene. Sometimes it's often uh, crass. It's uh, meant to be intimidating. And I wanted to put in perspective what I was talking about. I'm not talking about people thinking I'm not good at my job. I'm okay with that. Uh, I'm talking about violence and language and action uh, that comes regularly and comes via email. It comes via social media. It, it comes in in comments on, you know, controversial posts like, uh, about Remembrance Day. <laughs> um, it comes in all forms. And I, you know, I recently deleted my LinkedIn because I would open my LinkedIn as millennials do every six months. And there, there'd be a weird message harassing me about a policy decision that we'd made. I chose to, to limit the amount of social media that I have. If you don't mind me delving in, because I think it is pretty instructive that we actually open up and say, this is Sarah Hamilton's inbox. This is how grotesque it can get. Stuff like death threats, threats of violence. Is that something that comes in pretty regularly to your inbox? I don't want to say very regularly, but it's happened. Um, we've had intimidation where people intimate that they know where you live. Uh, they know where your family members live. And oftentimes when I've talked to women, you kind of mentally prepare yourself in politics for people to come after you. It's when people start talking about your family, start talking about, you know, innocent bystanders, essentially, that I think it can get to you. Um, we do have, City Hall does have strong security. So those messages get forwarded on to uh, our sec corporate security folks and EPS. But it's, it's unnerving when you get those kinds of messages. 
Do you think your fellow counselors kind of got that maybe for the first time or, or freshly as part of this discussion? It sounded to me like, you know, the mayor, for instance, was quite keen to have a policy because of, you know, this idea of some accountability, but ultimately, you know, decided that health and safety overruled that. So the first time that we had a discussion about the social media policy was a couple of weeks ago. And I think the way you reflected on it, that it seemed at that time like a slam dunk, um, was accurate. And I don't think that a lot of people at that point, the members of committee had considered those unintended consequences. So what is the standard of behavior that you're setting when you say that if you block someone, you have to sort of justify that? And an example that I use is, and this is real, I got a sexually suggestive email from a constituent inquiring about my personal life, (laughs) my personal relationships. I asked that person not to contact me. I indicated it was inappropriate. And then that individual went on Twitter and continued to harass me. And I chose to block them. And then what did they do? They came back to email. And it's, why are you blocking me? So I use that as an example because what was set out in the social media policy is that you'd have to justify why you were... Um, blocking somebody for their behavior. And as you all know, people can manipulate their own social media histories. Uh, If a Twitter account, for instance, gets reported for being inappropriate, uh, it it can be deleted. So those records can be transitory at times. You, you You can't always recall them and people can, oftentimes if their accounts are suspended, they have to delete the offending tweet or message before they can be reinstated. So it becomes incumbent on the counselor then to maintain records. And if you're getting four to one harassment, you're spending four times as much time putting that together and and justifying your own safety. And what you're saying is it might not even matter because these people don't just stick to Twitter to harass you. They find other avenues. Exactly. And it's a form of hostage taking, honestly, to go back and forth between several mediums. I think it's really interesting. And it's a point I hadn't considered about the document keeping. Essentially, this burden of proof and burden of record keeping in the social media policy would require you to basically make a scrapbook of all the times you got harassed, which is like a pretty insidious thing when you think about it. That no one reasonably would suggest that. But like you said, this is the unintended consequences. And I think this is a real life implementation of GBA plus because the policy was drafted with all good intentions to fix a problem, but it didn't include that GBA plus lens and left people just like you and I assume the other women and probably Councillor Banga, who I assume gets a lot of hate mail as well, in the lurch. That's very accurate. Um, and I think Councillor Paquette brought that up. Uh, Councillor Banga even spoke to the type of harassment that he's received um, being uh, racialized harassment. And Councillor Paquette, uh, Councillor Esslinger and Councillor Banga talked about um, having their grandchildren or children seeing these messages online that are uh, racialized, uh, gendered, uh, that... I mean, I think the GBA plus lens applied to this makes it a pretty hard policy at at this point to implement. So let's talk about implementation because 
all of this discussion aside, there's a reason this came forward and we all know what the reason is and we won't say he who shall not be named on the podcast except in the next segment when we get to that. Um, <laughs> but it was a very good, wholesome intention to say, hey, we should follow our council code of conduct. We shouldn't lie. We shouldn't keep our constituents blocked off from reading our policy proposals. Those are all very good things. Is that something that's still attainable? Do you envision there is some sort of policy that, you know, recognizing your right to block, your right to not have harassment can still accomplish the goals of making council's code of conduct enforceable on social media? I think there is a way to make it enforceable. Um, and I, I don't know how you're going to feel about it, Troy, but I think the best performance review that we get as councillors is every four years in an election. And that's an opportunity for the electorate to tell you exactly what they think of what you've been doing and how you've been doing it. I said this on the record in chambers, but if, if your goal as a politician is to get more people to know who you are and to understand your message, then you want more people to see it. So if your practice is to block people from seeing it. I I personally don't see how that's successful as a political strategy. And I think that it would be reflected in the choices of the electorate, to say that gently. <laughs> I think that's a very salient point about blocking. I think yeah. the other half that needs to be addressed and, you know, is sort of separate from this whole blocking discussion, but there's the misinformation piece on social media. Um, you know, some Jonathan Dennis might say that to ensure that counselors don't lie on social media is an infringement on their First Amendment, we don't have one of those, rights to free speech. And I wonder if this just needs to be counsel, has to be more aggressive in sanction hearings. Is there any policy that can really be drafted to say counselors can't peddle fake news on social media? What needs to be done there? Uh, I mean, that's a tough question. And I don't think it's just a tough question for council. We do have a code of conduct that most of council has abided by. Um, and I, you know, I, it hasn't been particular, a particular hardship to abide by that, you know, respectful communications, conducting oneself with integrity. But I think we've seen reflected in other jurisdictions over the last year or so, an intolerance from the public for that kind of cynicism, I would say. Because when you perpetrate that kind of misinformation, that kind of fake news, it sends a message that I think voters are picking up on that the politician, the, the candidate thinks they're stupid. And that's not a world I think I'm, I'm really comfortable living in where we think the worst of people. I don't think it speaks to what we need right now in our leadership. So I, I know this sounds a bit airy-fairy, um, but I think we are, I hope, I should say, I hope we are seeing a return to leadership with integrity, that that comes out in the electoral process. I think we see this at the provincial or the federal level too. You get partisan approaches to issues. What is truly misinformation, I think, ends up being more of a gray area than we're comfortable with. I think voters see through that. I guess this is a short answer. Voters see through that and we're increasingly disgusted by cynical politics. The last question that I have, at least, was... Part of the recommendations and part of the discussion that seemed to have gotten dropped in the discussion, because 
you know, all the comments about blocking, perfectly salient. But there was another proposal in the uh, social media policy that proposed perhaps there were two types of accounts, official and non-official accounts. Think, you know, POTUS on Twitter versus at Joe Biden. Do you think that's something that council has an appetite to pursue? Maybe there is just like an at Papasteo or at... Well, probably too many characters, but Epicoconipuzia, maybe there is a Twitter account for each of those ward counselors. What do you think about that idea? I actually think that's pretty reasonable. Um, We see already members of Edmonton City Council doing that. Uh, You have at Don Iveson and the Edmonton Mayor's Office account. You have Aaron Paquette and you have... I think it's Aaron Paquette Ward 4 account. It's Ward 4 Aaron, but... Ward 4 Aaron, yeah. (laughs) So I I think that's already in the works. One of the things I did bring up is that social media contact is... uh, An activity is completely unresourced. So that's happening. It happens because the counselor is making it happen and the staff are taking time out of their day to do that. And so having two accounts... I think there there's some kinks to work out there, so to speak. But I I don't think it's the worst idea. I think it's a reasonable solution. I don't know that it gets at harassment and discrimination, but uh, but it does I think get at the conflict of interest piece and the uh, and maybe some clarity around um, blocking, for instance, and and would allow continuity between counselors. Right now, when counselors leave office, there's no handoff. You you start fresh. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Sarah. You've given us a lot of insights and we didn't have to paraphrase you, which is always a boon. <laughs> I guess I'll ask the last question because you have declared that you'll be running again. Um, but we looked in the open data catalog and we couldn't find your registration as a candidate. You're still planning on running for re-election, correct? I am still planning on running for re-election. I... I have my nomination papers signed. I just have yet to make an appointment to officially file them. But I'll I'll be on the ballot this year for sure. Well, you've got lots of time still, so no rush. That's something I wanted to ask you about briefly because in 2017, you ran and you filed your nomination papers like everyone else in September, a month before the election. It is nigh February and we have candidates coming out of the woodwork filing their nomination because the nomination period has moved earlier. Is this as tiring for you as it is for us trying to cover it? It is. And I actually worry about all the candidates, especially those running in open wards. You, you've you run before, Troy, so I feel like I'm speaking to someone who's experienced. These campaigns at best are a marathon. Um, and I think we launched our campaign in May, and that's around the time we started door knocking. Um, and we needed that that runway f- um, from when I decided to run to when we launched to get ready. For all those candidates, I worry about burnout. Uh, it definitely puts people in the spotlight, I think, before um, they have time to really get a handle on what their campaign is about. And I, I worry it burns, it'll burn some people out. Everyone needs to take care of themselves. It's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. Well, look forward to seeing you in the race, marathon or sprint, whatever it may be, or later in the year, but hopefully a bit later in the year. Thanks for coming on, Sarah. It was great talking to you, as always. Thank you, Counselor. <laughs> Thanks, Troy. Thanks, Mac. So I mentioned he shall not be named in the previous segment, and 
I swear that's not for legal reasons, though uh, this week I did get registered mail from Forum Law. That was exciting. Yeah, you were quite excited when I uh, talked to you on Slack that you had uh, gotten this letter in the mail. I thought, what could it be? What would get Troy so excited? And it turns out it's a cease and desist from Councillor Mike Nickel. The lawyer on behalf of Councillor Mike Nickel. I think we should give a little bit of background on what happened here. The week that Mike Nickel announced that he was running for mayor, I had tweeted, perhaps a little sarcastically, with one blind source, which I still hold was a valid source, that Mike Nickel was too scared to run for mayor and he would be running in Ho Ward instead. Later that night, it was leaked. Uh, Dave Berta uh, of the popular Dave Berta podcast went ahead and got a screenshot of Mike's campaign staff accidentally leaking some of his mayoral campaign materials. Now, I did what a software developer does is I went and looked at the website and said, well, if this is leaking like a sieve, let's see where else this is leaking. And of course, uh, he had left something called directory indexing on. What that means is essentially when you're viewing a web page on the internet, it's just a document. It's a text document that pretty pictures get rendered on your browser, but fundamentally, it's just a web server serving a bunch of different documents to you. Now, instead of browsing and viewing a web page like Twitter and seeing all the elements on the screen, you can browse the directory and you can say, well, let, show me all the documents listed on this server. Now, most servers say, no, we don't allow you to browse the directory because, you know, we might leak sensitive data. Mike Nickel, who set up his website very, very poorly, uh, did not turn off directory indexing. So I was able to browse through, see all of his mayoral launch documents, and I got one of his campaign sign mockups. And I happily tweeted that out, sarcastically mentioning that, you know, if this was Benghazi, we've got Mike's emails. Um, right. And then the uh, partner at Forum Law had some choice words about what I did precisely. Yeah. So in the letter, uh, which I can read a little excerpt of, it says that you were able to access the administrative functions of Mr. Nichols' website, which is password protected, and that you did so without authorization. Um, and the letter goes on to say, quote, we have confirmed through our providers that the website was password protected at all times and was scheduled to launch live at a specific time. Therefore, your access and interception of the relevant digital data could only have been achieved unlawfully. End quote. So that one caught my eye because literally as we were talking, you could still directory browse the website, which means you could see all of those files. It was not password protected at any time. In fact, after I tweeted this cease and desist letter, as I want to do, the directory index was still live. After my tweet got, you know, uh, I think just over 100 retweets and several hundred likes, 11.20 a.m. that morning, Mike Nichols' campaign finally caught, caught on and disabled directory indexing. But if they had explicitly contacted their provider and said it was never publicly available at any time, they should have caught on to this because I wasn't secretive about how I got this data. I publicly said it was directory indexing, right? which is like a level of buffoonery and lack of forethought and lack of understanding that was pretty galling. But wait, there's more. Because the other thing this letter says is that it was December 11th, 2020, that you published statements which might suggest you were able to access this part of the website. But if memory serves, that was not December 11th. No, but I read this letter and this is where I get really excited, okay? Because this letter, just like Mike's server, 
leaked information. So I didn't tweet much on December 11th. In fact, there were only two tweets. One where I was announcing uh, speaking municipally what we heard from and one where I talked about Mike Nickel. And this was the tweet. It said, people curious about why Mike Nickel is restricted right now. At this point, Twitter had restricted his account and you couldn't follow it and you couldn't view the tweets without clicking confirmation dialogue. I said, people curious about why Mike Nichols is restricted right now. I'm 99% sure it's because he decided to empty out his follower list down to zero as a power play. And then Twitter flagged the account for suspicion of being hacked. Mm. Nothing exciting. So for them to say that because of this tweet on December 11th, they have reason to believe that I had gained access to the administrative section of Mike's site must mean that this tweet is correct, right? <laughs> Allegedly, maybe. <laughs> I'm just saying that their lawyer confirms that that tweet is correct. That's the only conclusion that I'm able to draw from there. So, Mike Nickel, guess your Twitter trap power play didn't work out, did it? Allegedly. <laughs> so you've already kind of given this away, but you posted this. So clearly you're not necessarily ceasing and desisting. No. And in fact, I talked to a couple of my lawyer friends and they all pretty unanimously confirmed that if I print out my tweets and send them to Mike's lawyer via registered mail addressed to Mike Nickel, his lawyer will actually bill Mike for the time in handling these letters. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, not, not at all surprising, but incredible. Uh, as I take it, you are going to be going to Staples soon to print some stuff. You know, no comment, Mac. I can't comment on legal proceedings before the court. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, okay. Well, Mike is running for mayor. The website does seem to be fixed now, uh, so I guess it's a happy ending. Well, I suppose we have several months to see just who is happy and who is Mike Nickel. All right, before we move off this, the last thing that uh, I wanted to mention is the last line of the letter, which is, <laughs> kindly govern yourself accordingly. And when we were talking about this, I said, hey, you're part of the Govern Yourself Accordingly Club. How does it feel? You know, I got the welcome message from... A couple other people that had gotten slapped and Dave Berto, who we mentioned earlier, who got the same govern yourself accordingly line from Tyler Shandro, who was acting as Ed Stelmack's lawyer way back in the day. Yeah. Um, it's nice to be part of the club. It's nice to just be nominated, honestly. And I am going to make the club proud by, you know, my actions. You can see I'm already governing myself accordingly. I can see that. We want to end with just a last note about transit funding because big news this week, Edmonton got a lot of money. Uh, so last week, Mayor Don Iveson was talking to the media about the things he wanted to bring up at the Big City Mayor's Caucus and the opportunity they had to uh, talk to the federal government. And one of those things was, of course, transit. And this week, um, we heard from the Prime Minister, who announced $14.9 billion over the next eight years for public transit projects across the country and a permanent transit fund that'll be created of $3 billion per year starting in 2026. So there's a huge funding announcement, Transit in Canada. Edmonton will receive some of that money. We don't know how much just yet, um, but it seems that the municipality's lobbying efforts with the uh, national federal government to, uh, to get transit funding have paid off. I'm not going to read into this too much, but I've seen Don Iveson and Amarjeet Sohi bouncing off each other quite a bit recently. And, you know, Don rightfully mentioned that Amarjeet was instrumental in setting up the framework that infrastructure funding like this could be delivered. Um, Amarjeet Sohi was the infrastructure minister under the liberal government for 
at least a couple of years before it got shuffled onto a different file. So yeah, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. Maybe there's a little teasing of handing off the mayoral ball to Amarjeet Sohi should he choose <laughs> to run. Um, Potentially. And it, should he choose to run, all the better for him because this is a big delivery for Edmonton. Yeah, absolutely. The mayor said it'll create jobs, shorten commutes, reduce emissions. He said, quote, transit is the backbone of livable, competitive cities, end quote. And we heard from others in the region as well. St. Albert Mayor Kathy Heron thought this was excellent news for the region. We heard from current councillors like Andrew Knack, himself a mayoral candidate, Bev Esslinger, uh, both really excited about this and what it could mean for LRT and building out the LRT network even further than it already is hopefully with more success than the previous lines. I think you missed an allegedly on Andrew Knack, mayoral candidate. Sorry, allegedly running for mayor. Though on the topic of big deliveries, that wasn't the only big delivery Edmonton had. Uh, We got the last light rail vehicle for Valley Line Southeast, which was a pretty big delivery. A lot of people had speculated that, you know, the Bombardier contract after what happened in Toronto wouldn't be delivered. And lo and behold, we've got all of them in our city. And you pointed out that uh, having all 26 of these trains in Edmonton puts us ahead of other places where they're still waiting on trains. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, Toronto still hasn't had their completed delivery from Bombardier after... I'm going to say like 17, 20, 30 millennia. Who knows how long it has been? It has been long overdue. But I found it very interesting because we didn't actually get the last LRT card delivered from Bombardier. The first 25 were delivered by Bombardier. The last one was delivered by Alstom, who had completed Bombardier's acquisition just this January for 5.5 billion euro. A lot of money. So Alstom bought the rail business from Bombardier is what you mean, right? Correct. Yes. Bombardier also has aerospace business. They just bought the rail division, which is also very interesting because the Metroline signaling system, when we threw away Thales's work and contracted for a new fixed block signaling system, we had selected Alstom as the contractor for the Metroline signaling. And that is due to be delivered basically now too. So also I'm really coming through for Edmonton. Yeah, it might seem risky to have all your eggs in one basket, just one company, but if they can actually deliver and get things done, then that's encouraging. Um, if they can help us get the, the uh, new Valley Line operational, get the Metro Line operational as it was intended to be, then I think we can all feel a little bit more confident about these billions of dollars that could help us build future LRT. And you know, speaking of the future, Well, let's just talk about the future of ATB's new podcast. Yeah, this episode is brought to you by The Future Of. You can join Todd Hirsch, ATB's vice president and chief economist, as he connects with special guests who offer unique and useful perspectives about the future. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. From the future of women in business to the changing nature of work itself, The Future Of helps us understand what's coming and what we need to do today to get the tomorrow we want. Uh, There's two episodes every month, plus bonus episodes. There's interviews with top community and business leaders, and you can subscribe pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can also ask questions of your own about the future by emailing Todd and his team at thefutureof@atb.com. That's all for this week. If you don't have an episode next week, it's because Mike Nickel threw me in the clank. (laughs) Govern yourself accordingly, Troy. I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Sarah. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.